Our scripture reading this evening comes from the 26th chapter of Matthew, starting in verse 20. And I will just note, if you would like a Bible, you're welcome to pull one again from the back of your seat, and I will not be putting stuff up on the screen like I do on Sunday morning. So if you want to follow along, you're welcome to grab that or use your phone. But Matthew 26, starting in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. 
God and Father, as we now reflect on your word, I pray that you would be near to us, teaching us, preparing us sinners to come to your table, preparing and being with me a sinner as I proclaim your word. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight, in our little bit of time together, I want to ask one question, which is, who belongs at the table of the Lord? Who belongs at the table of the Lord? On the one hand, one of the common and heartbreaking conversations that I feel like I have with people in the world is that some people would say, well, I don't belong, definitely. I, you know, Christianity, the church, Jesus isn't for me. And usually when you probe that, it's because there's some set of cultural or moral issues that they feel somehow makes it illegitimate for them to draw near to Jesus. They have these failings or struggles and they feel like, therefore, they don't belong. And then at the same time, while people don't come out and say it as explicitly, there's another set of people who believe in their hearts, well, I definitely do belong. Christianity and the church and Jesus are definitely for me. And what they mean is that it's for someone moral and successful who has a lot to offer like them. Someone who works really hard and does a lot of religious stuff. And again, unlike the first group, that second group doesn't come out and say it usually quite as directly. But it's very much in the hearts of many. What I want to suggest from this story about Jesus' last night before his death is that both of those groups of people are wrong. But to get there, first I want to just return to that question, who belongs at the table? And the way I want us to answer that is just to say we heard this story of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and praying in the garden, and he has just washed his disciples' feet. And who is there with him as the text begins? Well, first of all, the text calls our attention to Judas, the betrayer. Judas the betrayer. They're eating the Passover together, and then Jesus makes this sudden announcement, kind of ruining dinner in a way that I feel like Jesus probably regularly did. But he says to them, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Obviously, right, at that announcement, the disciples are disturbed, and they're all saying, "Um, is it me? It can't be me. I imagine they're also kind of looking around suspiciously with a, is it, is it you? You know, maybe it's you at each other. Um, and then Jesus joins in that denial. It says that Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. Now, if we read the other gospel accounts, we know that that's the point after that exchange where Judas gets up and goes off into the night. And the disciples don't get it, even though the way it's laid out in the gospel in hindsight It sure sounds like Jesus is saying, yes, it's you, right? In the moment where they're all kind of nervous and things are kind of ambiguous, they don't get that Judas is going out to betray Jesus. So Judas is there, and on the one hand, the story of Judas being there is about God's judgment for his betrayal. That's why Jesus says in verse 24 that the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. So it is that, but we ought not miss the other reality, which is that Jesus was there with the 11 disciples gathered at the table with Jesus. In fact, earlier in the evening, Jesus had washed Judas's feet 
along with the other 11 disciples. And even here, when he says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me, it's a way of saying, I know the betrayal in your heart, but still you're here and I am in fellowship with you at this table. Jesus is still offering companionship and a place at his table to Judas. So that's Judas, the betrayer. And then there's also Peter, the denier, who is at the table. After the meal, Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives, which is outside of Jerusalem. It's a place that Jesus seems to enjoy. And again, he gives some stern words to them and ruins the nice evening. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so at this point, Peter decides to speak up. And I imagine he's feeling offended by this point. After the stuff at dinner about one of you betraying me and now the stuff where you're all going to fall away, that, you know, Peter, um, he seems to have this image of himself as this brave, good, kind of heroic guy. And so he announces, well, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus replies to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter keeps on protesting in the text that we read, but if you know the rest of the story as it moves forward from our reading in Matthew 26, Jesus is, of course, right. And after his arrest, Peter is proven such a coward that he three times denies Jesus with cursing and oaths out of fear of some servant girls gathered around a fire. But again, we need to recognize the fact that Jesus, knowing this full well about Peter and about the other disciples, that's still the people that he shared that table with. Those were still the people that he invited to be with him. And not only that, right? That part maybe we could justify to ourselves because it's pretty extreme circumstances. While we all, I think, like Peter, would imagine that if we were in the disciples' shoes, we would be brave and stick with Jesus. Like, they are facing potentially their own executions. And some part of us as human beings can recognize that maybe that denying of Jesus, like, I can get that, right? That, you know, but, um, but it's not just that in this story. Because if you keep reading then, Jesus goes with his disciples to Gethsemane, and he says, sit here while I go over there to pray. And then he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and it says he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. They can see this in him, right? That he's deeply troubled. And he says that I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, stay here with me and keep watch. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. And in his humanity, he is struggling with it. And he asks these, his closest friends, to stay with him. And that is not a request for them to go be crucified with him, right? That is just a request for them to be decent friends and human beings. But of course, they don't even do that. Then Jesus returns to his disciples and finds them sleeping and says, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? You can hear the pain in that, right? These people, they can't even spend an hour staying awake to provide their friend and teacher with comfort. And twice more he asks them, and twice more they fall asleep. Which is to say, the disciples are pretty much total failures in this story. They're failures, can't even do those basic things that we recognize that good friends should do. But these were the people who Jesus prayed for in the garden, and who he ate with at the table, and whose feet he washed. 
these were the people that Jesus put at his table. And importantly, they were the only people. Nobody else is present at the Lord's Supper. No one who isn't a betrayer or a denier or a failure. And that simple observation should teach us two things. It should warn us against our false ideas about religion, and it should show us all our need for God's grace. First of all, that should warn us against our false ideas about religion. This text shows us that the idea that those people we mentioned at the beginning have, that they belong because they're the good people, they're the righteous people, is just not how Christianity works. In the first place, there are good, righteous, religious people in the gospel narratives, right? It's worth noting that they're the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and none of them are invited to the table, and just in general, they don't fare very well in Jesus's ministry. In fact, those are the people that Judas is going to sell Jesus out to and who end up crucifying him. But more than that, Jesus seems intent even with the disciples on undermining their ideas that they are good people. I mean, notice Jesus says they will all fall away. um, And then Peter declares back to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples say the same thing. Right? When we hear that, we're supposed to recognize that Peter is so vehement about that because he recognizes that Jesus is attacking something he believes about himself. Peter believes that he's one of the good guys, right? That he's one of the, the righteous few that are following the Messiah. That's why he and the other disciples take that posture. And the whole reason Jesus points out to them their coming denial is to force them to recognize that that isn't true. The problem for them and for us with basing our hope on being those sorts of good religious people, is that it is a lie. It is a lie we tell ourselves and a lie we tell the world. Right? That is Peter's problem. It's that he's lying to himself about about his goodness. He is firmly convinced that he will be the brave one and the one who sticks with Jesus, right? And he's wrong. That's what Jesus is trying to show to him. We are all bad people in the eyes of scripture. We are all betrayers and deniers and failures. And one of the great dangers of religion in our world is that it makes us think otherwise. It makes us think that we can clean ourselves up and feel morally superior, like we are better than other people. The thing about Jesus is that if we are religious in that way, then it does not seem that there is a place for us at Jesus' table. He does not invite those people to come. I love reading the Puritans, and they often talk about what they see as the the true challenge in the Christian life. The Puritans would say, first, first, when you come to Jesus, you have to repent of your wickedness, right? You have to repent of the evil, sinful things you do. And that's hard enough. But then after that, they would say, you have to repent of your righteousness, too, You have to repent of all of the good deeds and good moral things you have done. And of course, they don't mean by that truly good things, right? They don't mean that we should stop seeking true righteousness. But what they meant was the false righteousness that so often accompanies our religion. 
if we think that we are good people and so God owes us things, then that means that we have imagined ourselves on an equal playing field with the Lord, which is blasphemy, right? A serious sin. If we do good things in order to earn God's favor and put him in our debt, um, that, is, that means our goodness is driven by selfishness, not out of love for God and neighbor. If we do good things to pay for our sins and make atonement for ourselves, that means that we are denying the work of Christ and demanding that we be justified on our own terms. We need to repent of all of that, of all of the ways that we pretend to goodness instead of casting ourselves on God's mercy. But then that's the second thing that this story is meant to drive us to, and the bigger one. It is meant to show all of us our need for grace. Whether in the eyes of the world we are immoral or, or moral, whether we are irreligious or religious, our only hope in this thing is the grace that God worked in Jesus Christ. I mean, how is it that around the table are, is, you know, a betrayer and a bunch of deniers and failures? It isn't because those things don't matter. In fact, within the narrative, we see Jesus being deeply wounded by the failures of his disciples. Rather, the grounds at, by which he gathers them to the table are what he tells them at that table. Listen to what he says over the cup as he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup represents the blood of the covenant, he says. By that, he means the blood of the sacrifices that for his Jewish disciples underlay the covenant. These constant animals that were killed in the hope that they symbolized the reality that, that, God, um, that God somehow in the spilling of their blood would overlook the sins of Israel. What Jesus is saying is, I am that blood. I am that sacrifice. Indeed, he says, that blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right there with the disciples, knowing their failure to come, Jesus is telling them the answer to it, and the answer is that he is paying to forgive them. Likewise, after he tells them that they will fall away, he makes this simple statement in verse 32. He says, you're all going to fall away, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee which is so easy to miss, but so beautiful. He says, you're going to abandon me, you're going to scatter, and I'm going to be killed, but it's okay, because after I raise from the dead, I'll meet you in Galilee. The promise of resurrection, but also of restored relationship. Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me and forsake me, and next meet week I'll meet up with you guys again. And how can that be? Because it rests ultimately in what he prays in the garden in verse 39. He falls on his face to the ground and says, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a few verses later, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What is the cup Jesus is talking about? It is an image laden with Old Testament background. It's the cup that represents God's wrath for our sin. In our sin, we betray God and destroy the world and don't even recognize how deep that betrayal and destruction run. And there is a reckoning that that sin demands. 
We should all be destroyed and consumed in judgment. I should. All of us should. And one of the ways the prophet pictures that is it's this cup that is overflowing with kind of the justice that our misdeeds have demanded um, that is about to be poured out in judgment. And Jesus Christ is saying that he is taking that cup and instead of pouring it out on us, he is drinking it himself to the last drop. He drinks it until it kills him, and in that act, he fulfills the demands of justice and pays for our sins. That is the reason that everyone around the table of Jesus is so messed up. Because of course they are, because that is the point. Christianity is about sinners acknowledging they are sinners and coming to Jesus because he is the one who pays for their sin and offers them salvation. Peter and the other disciples do not deserve to be at the table. That is true. But that's part of why Jesus invites them. Not because he's lowering his standards, but because by his work in the cross and his work in their hearts to save them, he is raising them to a position of his righteousness and grace. Which leaves us with the question that we are always confronted with when we come the Lord's table and we reflect on his work on the cross, which is not, do we deserve it? Not, how do we belong ourselves? But will we accept it? Will we accept it for ourselves? We've been stressing that everyone around the table in the upper room was a sinner. But not everyone found Jesus' grace. We shouldn't miss that in the story either. Jesus welcomes Judas, just like the other 11 disciples, and he washes Judas's feet, and he would have offered Judas the cup of the new covenant of blood, in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But Judas fled into the night and does not accept the grace that Jesus offers him. Why is that? I mean, on one level we don't know for sure, but I suspect it was this. It was that Judas could not bear to acknowledge his sin in a way that would bring forgiveness. To own God's grace means that we have to humble ourselves. We have to acknowledge the ways that we have betrayed the Son of God. And for Judas, that was not a humbling that he was really willing to make. In fact, he would rather in his pride die for his own sin, which is what he does when he hangs himself in the next chapter. He would rather do that than, his, than admit his need and look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Jesus' grace was big enough for Judas, but in his hardness of heart, Judas refused it. We're about to come to the Lord's table. And sometimes when Christians discuss taking the Lord's Supper, they talk about this idea of examining yourself, examining your heart before you come. And here's the thing, that is a legitimate and biblical thing to tell people to do, but often we hear that and we get the wrong idea. The impression I think some people get is that means we're supposed to examine our hearts, and if we find sin in them, or at least particularly bad sin, that we ought not come to the table. And that is wrong. <laughs> Instead, we are to examine our hearts to find our sin, because it is there, because that is how we come to the table, as sinners. Our call is to look and see that sin, and then to look to Jesus Christ, 
and the grace he offers us for our salvation. To place our hope in his broken body and his shed blood, because that is the only thing that makes us worthy to come. So friends, let us make that our hope this evening as we prepare to come to the table and our hope each day as we live as Christians. Because in a real sense, this thing should not be for us, but it is, not because of us, but because of the good work of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare now to celebrate the feast. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, thank you for the love you have for us, that we are undeserving sinners. Thank you that though we so often deny you and fail you and are not people that we ought to be. And in Jesus Christ, you have already paid for all of those sins and welcome us nonetheless to follow after him. Pray that we might make him our hope and treasure. I pray in his name.